All right, we're going to begin with a prayer. Um, let me get to the right day here in the treasury. Okay, let us pray. Um, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Oh. O God, the source of all that is just and good, mm, um, mm, excuse me, um, mm, Nourish in us every virtue and bring to completion every good intent that we may grow in grace and bring forth the fruit of good works. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Uh, okay, so... We are in session 10. 10. Yeah. Session 10, the pattern of death and life. Uh, it's good to be back into this study. Um, covered a lot of ground so far. It's hard to believe we're, what? 10 weeks in. You're 10 weeks in, a little over halfway done. Oh, we have 17 sessions, right? So, um, But we're not that far into the book of Romans. We're only in like chapter 5. So we're going to have like a mad dash at the end, I bet. That's okay. Um, but the focus of this study uh, is uh, that all people die because of Adam, but God grants life to all people because of Christ, right? Um, let's go ahead and dive in. Who wants to begin with reading that first part up to the first question? I'll start it. Go for it. A popular expression among some counselors encourages people to make their peace with death. The sick and the elderly are counseled to think of death as a friend and not an enemy. In contrast, Paul describes death as the opposite of life as God created it. It is, and always will be, an enemy to be conquered. Paul wants to demonstrate that one who is righteous by faith lives a life that is victorious over sin and death. In order to demonstrate this truth, Paul sets forth how sin and death came into this world and how they were overcome by Christ. This portion of Romans is the Sedis, Sedis Doctrinae. Sedis Doctrinae. Doctrinae? Yeah. For original sin, the sinful condition that all humankind inherits as the result of Adam's disobedience. Even though Eve was also involved with the first sin, Paul focuses on Adam here to help shape the one-man Adam and the one-man Christ pattern. He begins in 512 by clearly and unambiguously anchoring the origin of sin and death in Adam's disobedience. Even as sin entered the world through one man and, th and through sin, death also entered Therefore death came to all men, because all men sinned. Some scholars debate about how this sentence should be understood, as is visible from the six options discussed by C.E.B. Cranfield. One, because of which death all people sinned. 
2, in whom Adam all people sinned, 3, because of whom Adam all people sinned, 4, because all people, because of Adam, a critical and exergical uh, commentary. I think it's oh, because, because all oh, people sinned. did I skip sinned. a line? Yeah. yeah, you skipped a line. Okay, 5, because all people sinned after Adam's example, and 6, because all people sinned because of Adam. Yeah, you can skip the citation. And okay. all that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Though many options have been suggested over the years, this phrase in 512 clearly grounds our sin and resulting death in Adam's disobedience. We must avoid any interpretation that emphasizes that sin is only wrong action or inaction and not an inherited condition. An illustration may reveal why this is important. For some interpreters, sin works like a skin disease. It appears on the surface of a person and when quickly detected is easily treated. In contrast, Paul wants us to understand the thoroughly corrupting power of sin, like a genetic illness that affects every cell in the body, sin dwells in every aspect of a person. Romans 5.12 states that we begin life with sin because we inherited from our parents. We carry within us the cause of our own demise. Okay. So how might the different pictures of sin described above affect the way people look at newborn children and their spiritual needs. So what, what, kind of, uh, what kind of pictures of sin was talked about there? Original sin. I, put, I answered that question, because all sin, some may think, not yet. Wait, what's that now? So If you don't believe in original sin, you would think a newborn may not have sinned yet. Right. Yeah, because if you think, what, like, sin is like a skin disease, like it's like skin cancer, right? Yeah. Pops up, you get it treated, get it taken off, you're good to go. Go out the door, you're all good, right? They see it as, as only the outward action or the inaction of what you should be doing, right? And we would say, yeah, that, that, in, that includes, that's within the realm of sinful action or inaction, right? That you do the things you shouldn't do or don't do the things you should do. But if you only see it as an outside action, yeah, you'd easily see a kid, a, a baby. It's just like, how can a baby, like my boy, he's, um, is he six months now? No, he's only five <laughs> months now. Um, he's five months old and all he does is like smile and kick. And yeah, he, yeah, he yells when he's hungry. But I mean, someone who only thinks that sin is like a skin condition on the outside, you'd look at him and be like, he sins? Like, how does that happen? And what does he do that makes him a sinner? Mm -hmm. So what can that do? I mean, in the end, we as Lutherans would see that as a problem if someone sees that as a kid, uh, not, not being a natural-born child of wrath, right? Uh, that's a problem because why? What do people usually leap to when you say, well, babies can't sin? What do they say? They can't think for themselves. They can't. They can't think for themselves. They can't do things for themselves. They can't sin, and therefore, they jump to usually. So, why do they need to be baptized? Yeah, and people yeah. are they're inherently good, maybe. 
Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to all that about, about different thoughts about free will and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, so if you think that sin is a, like a skin disease, you'll naturally think that a kid, that like a baby's spiritual needs are not really that great. Mm-hmm. Um, and you pretty much neglect them until they're old enough, right? Quote unquote, old enough to understand what's going on, which is kind of funny to me. Um, I know I'm a new dad and everything, but I, I give thanks to God for the examples that I've seen of, of Christian parents who start teaching their kids really, really young and, and not in a way to where it's like a punishment or it's, 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 um, or it's a daunting task or whatever, but with Charlotte, I mean, she's, she just turned two years old. We sat down at dinner tonight and yeah, she started to kind of eat her chicken a little bit before we prayed, but she's, as she grabs her fork, she's stabbing the chicken going, pray, pray. <laughs> she knows we should pray before we eat, but she keeps eating. You know, she's, you know, you got to have grace with these things. I don't like to slap the fork out of her hand, yeah. but I just said, that's, that's right. Let's pray. And I was like, put your fork down, put your hands together, you know, and just kind of, and she puts her hands together and she puts her hands together to pray. She says, amen. She's two years old. I mean, but according to, and let's just throw it out there. Usually this is the thought amongst, you know, like Baptists, right? They'll throw it out there and say, well, kids aren't old enough to know this, their, their spiritual needs. And it's like, well, sure, they don't know what their needs are yet. But that shouldn't keep you from teaching them early and often what it means to be a baptized child of God, what it means to know who Jesus is. Like we have crucifixes in our home and, and Charlotte wants to kiss Jesus all the time. You know, she may not know exactly what that means or exactly who he is, but I'll ask her, Charlotte, do you love Jesus? She's like, uh-huh, you know? It's like, yeah, she says, uh-huh, to a lot of things. But, you know, um, at least there's that beginning right there. So it makes me kind of wonder, how old is old enough to know? I mean, how do people make these de- determinations, right? See, that's when I had a, uh, a conflict with, like, baptism and mm-hmm. stuff like that. It's like, well, how old are they before they can choose to be baptized or whether they're condemned or not condemned? Right. Like, where's that, that where's line in the sand that God's like, okay, now you're accountable, accountable for your sins. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's known as the age of accountability, and right? It's like a, a eternal conflict you will always have. Yeah. You, you, you ask some folks who will, Talk about the age of accountability, you'll say, what is that age? And they'll usually land around, what, like, somewhere between 8 and, like, 12, you know, something like that. And they'll say, well, it depends on the kid, right? The maturity of the kid, I'm just like, that's extremely arbitrary, man. Everything's wishy-washy. Yeah, that's extremely arbitrary. It's all kind of up in the air. So there's 8 billion different definitions of what that could be, I mean, person to person. Yeah, which, which is... Very interesting, you know. It's 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 putting a lot of guesswork into salvation, right? And and if you want anything, if there's one thing you shouldn't have in the realm of salvation, you, sh- you shouldn't have guesswork or doubt, right? So um, so someone so pe- people who think of sin as an outward sort of thing, yeah, they'll think that kids aren't sinful or they don't need spiritual care, something like that. You may they may. I wouldn't put it past people. This is this is me being charitable because I, I don't think there are 
Baptists or whoever out there saying, well, I'm never going to talk to my kids until they're old enough. Like, I'm never going to talk to my kids about Jesus until they're old enough to understand. I'm sure when they're babies, they teach them, you know, Jesus loves me and, and you know, they'll teach them uh, that Jesus died for them and, and they'll teach them Bible stories and things like that. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that they'll, there may be some people out there who go to the extreme and say, well, until my kid can understand, I'm just not going to talk to them about Jesus. Maybe there's somebody out there. But the benefit of the doubt is that they'll still talk to them about Jesus, but they won't think that their spiritual need for it is great because they don't really understand the sin that they're born with, right? Yeah, they're not going to really get anything out of it because they can't understand it anyway. <laughs> yes, I'm trying to... Th- maybe, try yeah. To well, it's 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 one of those things. Um, uh, with, with the Word of God, it is a powerful thing. It is a wonderful thing. Um, that, I don't know, um, kids are... Kids are smarter than people give them credit for. Them. Yeah, they're pretty, <laughs> I mean, uh, they figure things out pretty quick. They figure things out really fast. Uh, Charlotte, if you ask her what her favorite hymn is, she'll tell you. You know what it is? Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. She'll tell you that. In her own way, it's kind of garbled. It's like, Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. Right? It's kind of like quick little rapid fire thing. But we'll catch her singing bits and pieces, you know, like, Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, your power make known, you know, for you are Lord of Lords alone. And she'll like kind of miss a few things here and there, but she gets it. She loves that hymn. Uh, so much so that we play it in the car all the time. Um, and we know it by heart, right? And that's good for us as parents. But it's like, kids are smarter than you give them credit for. They learn really fast. They pick up really fast. And they learn your bad habits as well as your good. So that's one, one of these things that, that uh, is kind of off topic a little bit here, but it's for children and their spiritual needs. They need to hear the word of God all the time. And when they're in church, it's important for them to be in church to understand the rhythm of church and how things go, because all of it is for them too, you know? I mean, uh, everything in church is just, it's for everybody, right? It's for the young and for the old. It's for everybody. It's for all the saints. So um, it's very interesting, though, because um, I think people have gotten a little soft on saying this, but I don't think we should be soft about this, about what it is when people deny the sin that we are born with, right? They inherently deny the sin that we, uh, that is passed down to us from Adam, right? Um, it's a heresy, right? Some people might say, well, it's an error. No, let's call it what it is. It's a heresy. It goes directly against God's God's word. And this is actually a heresy that was, it's not new. I mean, Ecclesiastes, I mean, Solomon was right in Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. I mean, all, all heresies are ancient and, I mean, just rear their ugly heads every so often, right? Um, this, this, this heresy was started by, uh, a man named Pelagius. Y'all ever heard of Pelagius? Pelagianism. So Pelagius was, um, um, a, I can't remember if he was a, a presbyter or a deacon in the church. Um, I think he might've been British. Anyways, um, 
in the fifth century, he started this teaching where he was saying, well, um, we can have a part in our conversion. He was starting to say that we actually are born, we are made in the image of God. We have the divine light already. Uh, it may be dormant, but it's there. And uh, when the word of God comes in and, and we hear the gospel, that light is what grasps on to God's promise. And he was basically saying what a lot of people say today. You hear, you, you hear a lot, you know, you have, a, you have a choice to make, to believe or not to believe, to, he didn't use so many words, but it's turned into make a decision for Christ, right? It's not a new thing. This was back in the, Fifth century, so like the 400s, and this is what uh, St. Augustine actually, he battled him, and he used Romans 5 to prove him wrong, right? Now, sadly, it's kind of funny how heresies will come, and they take a long time to die out. Uh, Pelagianism, I, I mean, in some, in some sense, it went kind of dormant and didn't really become mainstream for a long, long time. Now it just has a different name. It's decision theology, right? It's the same, same issue, um, and it's a false teaching, and uh, we use Romans 5 to battle it, to say, no, 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 it's not about a decision, it's not about anything in you that chooses Jesus or not, um, which is really hard for us as Americans, I think, because we like voting, right? Uh, <laughs> we'll, and freedom. And freedom, and I have my autonomy, right? Who are you to say that I can't choose what I want for myself, right? So we as Americans have, and that, I mean, why do you think the Baptists, uh, I mean, I think, I think the biggest Christian denomination in America, I think, is Roman Catholicism. But, I mean, not too far behind is Southern Baptists and things like that. You know, those, those kind of uh, denominations that espouse this actual false teaching, right? It's not, it's not good. Because, like I said before... If there's one thing you don't want in the realm of salvation, it's the possibility of doubt. And it's the possibility of maybe, maybe not. Maybe I made the right decision. Maybe I, maybe I did things in the right way. Maybe I didn't, you know. Not everybody goes through that crisis, but I've heard of plenty who do, right? It's always a danger there. It's a danger. And you don't want that tied to your understanding of salvation and your need for salvation because you are born sinful, right? Um, so any, any, any thoughts on that before we move on? Want to take a sip of water? I thought it was, you know, I guess the Bible says we're born in sin. I mean, David says in Psalm 51 that he was conceived in sin, you know, yeah. not, okay. not that his conception itself was sinful, but since he was, con okay. since he was conceived, he was a sinner in the womb. You know? So, yeah, it's his parents' word, so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, so, I mean, and, and, and you go back to Romans 3, right? Uh, there is none righteous, no, not one, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, any other thoughts on that? Do y'all think, think I'm too strong in calling that a heresy? No. I mean... If we were back in Luther's time, and before that, claims of heresy meant death. So, 
things have lightened up a little bit these days, but that's because we don't live in a, we live in a, a in a society where it's not, sorry, but we don't really live in a Christian society as much as Luther did in the sense that it's part of the governmental system, right? Uh, okay, no other thoughts on that? Well, let's keep moving on then. So, in Romans 5.14, Paul calls Adam a type of the one who is to come. The basic sense of the word type is a pattern. Paul uses this term for interpreting the Old Testament both here and in 1 Corinthians 10.6 and 10.11. He views Old Testament events as important patterns for understanding how God works with his church. Already within the Old Testament, the prophets saw patterns in in the earlier biblical writings, which they used to describe past, present, or future actions of God. Um, New Testament writers follow this example in seeing various people, institutions, and events in biblical history as types or patterns of a later person, institution, or event. So, based on your knowledge of the Old Testament... Can y'all give an example of a type or pattern? Let's just start with that, and then if and then we'll look at, at the specific example of Romans 4, verses 3 and 6. So, what did y'all put for that? We're talking about people as a as a type of like a Christ. Yeah. To pe- Christ. Well, people as types of whatever. I mean, patterns that you see in the Old Testament that that are fulfilled later on in the New Testament or even today. Uh, what do y'all have for that? I had verse 3, believe leads to righteousness. Verse 6, blessedness leads to righteousness. One leads to another. Right, so uh, who is in verse... So it, he's, he's pointing to Romans 4, verses 3 and 6. Who's Who does he talk about in verse 3? Chapter 4, verse 3. Who does he talk about? Abraham. Abraham. Uh, uh, Verse 6, who does he talk about? David. 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 These are both types of believers, the faithful, right? They are types and patterns of those who are justified by God's grace through faith, and so are we, right? I mean... um, they are patterns of those who are justified by God's grace through faith. That's namely us, too. So um, can you all think of any other types or patterns from the Old Testament? Um, yeah, Amy? Yeah, I had the obvious to me, I think, um, Isaac. Isaac, okay. Type of Christ. Okay, yeah. Then uh, the bronze snake from Moses. I also said Melchizedek. Yeah. And this might be a little bit more of a stretch, but I also said Joseph. Yeah, Joseph is a type of Christ. He was redeemed, or he he suffered, and and for his sake, he, you know. Egypt to save his people. That's right, yeah. Um, Yeah. Israel itself, you know. Israel, who who is Jacob, Jacob. right? Uh, The nation of Israel, uh, which is the church. Right, uh, it's a foreshadowing of the church and believers and the relationship that Israel had with God throughout the centuries. I mean, that's the relationship of the church, right? One of 
grace, forgiveness, uh, falling into sin, rebuking, repentance, grace, forgiveness, you know, the cycle of things. Um, Melchizedek, I love Melchizedek. That's such a great, great type of Christ. Um, Y'all know who Melchizedek is? Prophet, priest, and king. Yes. Uh, He was the one that came with Abram. He met Abram and the king of Sodom. Was it the king of Sodom? Yeah, it was the king of Sodom. And he brought bread and wine, which I thought was cool. He brought bread and wine, and he blessed it, and he blessed he blessed Abram, and I mean Melchizedek itself, like the the name itself means king of righteousness, and he was the king of Salem, which later became known as Jerusalem, right? So it's very interesting. And and then I I after class one time you asked me who I thought he really was, and I told you. Uh, who I thought I think thought that it was Shem. Luther had a really cool theory that it was Shem. You know who Shem was? Who was Shem? Noah's son, son of Noah. Noah. Son of Noah. Who were his descendants? The Shemites or the Semites? The Arameans. Abraham was an Aramean, right? He was a descendant of Shem. And from Shem, you know, you have so so like after after the flood, you have three nations of the the Shemites, the Japhethites, and the Hamites, and you know you go from there. Very very interesting to go and look back at the table of nations after the flood. Um, uh, that that that's neither here nor there. It's kind of interesting that Luther believed, or he posited, he theorized that Melchizedek was Shem. Uh, and Shem was still alive during that time. So he likes to believe and likes to claim, which I think is pretty neat. Uh, so anyways, uh, but Melchizedek himself is a type of Christ. The judges are types of Christ, Samson, uh, Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, those guys, right? So they're they're all they're all types of Christ. Moses, in some sense, was a type of Christ, right? Because he led his people out of uh, out of the bondage of slavery uh, into the promise. Well, he didn't go into the promised land. Joshua is a type of Christ. I mean, Jesus gets his name sort of from Joshua, right? So yeah, lots of types and shadows. And I have a great joke. I think it's great. You probably will groan, but that's because I guess I'm a dad now and I can make these jokes. Um, Melchizedek walks into a bar and the bartender says, we don't serve your type here. I'll be here all week. So uh, you get it? He's a type of Christ. The bartender says, we don't serve your type here. Is this thing on? All right. All um, right. Anyway, so yeah, there's 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 a lot of different types and shadows throughout uh, scripture, uh, foreshadowing um, patterns of uh, believers, patterns of you know what to expect in Christ and things like that, right? I, even even the prophets uh, are patterns of preachers, right? Pastors who would call people to um, repentance and faith. Yeah, uh, I thought about. Peter referring to Sarah and mm-hmm. the, the women of old that uh, the, uh, in submission to their husbands yep. in First Peter 3 yep. where it's used, they're used as an example, mm-hmm. example 
All of the temple diesel into plant. That's right. And it's a good one. And when I was, I did a lot of teaching with that, and you could bring it in. Uh, what did God want, or what? Did, how did they serve God? Right. By their behavior. By being that. being obedient, being submissive to their husband. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. That's a that's a tough issue to talk about these days. I'll tell you what. Um. Uh. Yeah. That's a that's a tough issue. Even in the Missouri Synod, it's a tough issue to talk about. But um. No, we should talk about it because. Scripture talks about it, right? Headship and and um, husbands well, and wives that, being what they are. The first chapter, uh, first verses of that chapter, mm -hmm. he's saying if your husband doesn't listen to the Lord, you could, the wife can her behavior, her attitude, everything right. can win him over. That's right. It's and a possibility. Yeah. It's, and the submission is part of it. The whole attitude. And that's something that's missing in our society. So I've worked with that quite a bit yeah. at one time. Yeah, I think, um, well, I'll just say it really quick, and you can stone me if you want, that's okay. Um, I think it's kind of interesting. Satan has really gone after the women a lot. But you know what, ladies, I hate to tell you, he hasn't gone after y'all just to get at you. He's gone after y'all to get to the men. Uh, men, men have a tendency, and Scripture is full of examples. Talk about patterns. <laughs> scripture is full of examples of men abdicating their responsibility to women. All the way to Eve. All the way to Eve, which we're about to talk about, right? But even, even also, remember how I said judges were a type of Christ? Um, what, what, what judge didn't I talk about? What judge didn't I say very briefly? <laughs> Deborah. Deborah. <laughs> People want to say Deborah, and, and people use Deborah as a form, as as a way to also talk about women's ordination and things like that. And I, 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 sorry, maybe I'm sick. I don't know. Maybe I'm sick. But when people talk about Deborah as an example of why you should have women's ordination, I like to burst their bubble by saying Deborah was used to shame the men. The men didn't do their job. They needed a woman to tell them what to do, and they even said, "We won't go unless you come with us." And, and, and then even to shame the enemies of God, what was that guy's name? I'm so bad re remembering. The guy who had his... Naboth. Naboth, yeah. And Jael. Was it where, where she drives a tent spike through his skull? Oh. Yeah. I mean, and that's what God does to his enemies too, right? He shames them in that way too. But it's like he, he shamed the men by giving them a woman judge, right? They needed to step up. They needed to do what they needed to do. Um, so, uh, yeah, you can, you can be upset with me all you want, but that, that's what scripture says. I'm going to stick to it. Pastor it's, Willis told us the same thing. Yeah. We're all are in agreement. Good. All right. I knew I liked is. that guy. I knew I liked him. I talked to him the other day. Uh, <laughs> Did you? Yeah. He's a good guy. But it's, it's, it's one of those things where, yeah, culture doesn't like to hear that, but that's what we got to say because scripture says that. Um, and I was reading Isaiah chapter three today. And, um, <laughs> I, well, the Lord speaks through Isaiah telling his people that your rulers will be children and women shall rule over you. And when he says that, he does not mean that that's a good thing, right? That your princes shall be children and women shall rule over you. And yeah, 
that's 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 not a good thing. Anyways, um, so it's that's that's a call for men to step up, not to be despotic, not to be tyrants, but to be good godly men as they should be. Right. Okay. Now we're going to get to the first man who really made all the mistakes that put us in the position where we are today in terms of sin. Right. So. Moving on here, the question arises, how is Adam, who is so different from Christ, a type of Christ? Paul highlights the pattern by noting that both that, that both Adam and Christ did one thing that had amazing consequences. Adam disobeyed and brought the chaos of sin into all creation, but Christ obeyed. And, and brought an end to the dominion of sin over creation. Uh, therefore, Adam's, Adam's, Adam's negative act with its far-reaching consequences serves as a pattern to help us understand Christ's positive act with its, with its even more amazing consequences. Think of the vast difference between a photo negative and a photo print. First of all, who knows those 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 things anymore? This, I I remember it, but dig up some of those. Talk to a Gen Z kid today and they'll probably be like, "Ooh, that's niche, you know." So anyways, a photo negative and a photo print. Looking at both, you can they'll, they'll probably see that as like a filter on their phone or something like that, you know. Um Looking at both, you can easily detect a similarity in pattern, but while the while the the negative appears drab and strange, the print appears lively, colorful, and and natural. In a similar way, Paul points out the common pattern between the negative role of Adam and the positive role of Christ. This is as far as the typology or pattern goes. Paul is very careful to contrast the actions of Adam and Christ in uh, chapter 5, verse 15, where he says, For if the masses died by the trespass of the one, how much more did God's grace and the gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the, to the, the masses? Notice the expression, how much more here and in 5, verse 17. The one action of Adam brought death to all. God's grace in Christ overcame not only Adam's sin, but the sin Adam passed to all humanity. This contrast continues to be, um, continues to be emphasized in 5, verse 16, namely the gift is not like the one man's the one man's sinning for on the one hand judgment came after the one sin that led to condemnation but on the other hand grace after many trespasses led to a righteous status the contrast is also very pointed in 5 verse 19 adam disobeyed but christ obeyed Right? So just as Paul draws a comparison between, between Adam and Christ, draw a comparison between Christ 
and you. If you need some help, there's 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. So what did y'all have for that? What's the comparison between you and Christ? I'm a sinner. He's not. Yep. Anybody else have anything else? Christ is my bather. He washes my sins away. He's your bather. I had never heard of bathers before. <laughs> yeah, it's true. He, he washes you clean. Yeah. Yeah. Were you going to say something to me? Child of God, heir of heaven. Nice. Yeah, we are sons of God. Uh, even the ladies. Say no. We're sons of God. First, firstborn sons because of the Son of God. Uh, co-heirs with Christ. Yeah. Uh, don't worry, uh, because men are also part of the bride of Christ. So if That's you have a problem being the son of a son of God, we are we are our part of the bride. So we got to bear with that too. That's one of those modern adaptations they they've used instead of sons of God, they say children of God. Yeah, brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to make that emphasis more of saying. We are sons of God, right? And that's okay. Um, yeah, we got so crazy with gender nowadays. It's nuts. But yeah, um, our comparison between us and Christ um, is that we are unrighteous and Christ is righteous. And he makes us righteous on his own account, right? Uh, for our sakes. Um, uh, because Christ, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Christ, he who knew no sin, became sin. That is, he took sin upon himself so that we might become the righteousness of God. Right? Um, and we talk about baptism. Uh, you know, James, you said he's your bather, right? He washes you clean. That's true. He, he washes you in his, in his blood in baptism. You are washed clean of your sin. Um, and uh, that's why we celebrate the baptism of our Lord. Uh, we might ask ourselves, well, why did Jesus need to be baptized? And even, even St. John the Baptist said, I should be baptized by you, and you want me to baptize you? And Jesus says, let it be so, for uh, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, right? Um, I read that today, too, in Matthew 3. I'm going through this program it's a, a Bible reading program. You read the Bible in eight months, but you do it in a way where it's like you read Matthew 1, Genesis 1. Uh, That's what this does in the back here. Oh, yeah? It gives me the Bible in a year. And yeah. You have, it's like Genesis 1, 2, Psalm 1, Matthew 1, 2. Nice. Genesis 3, 4, Psalm yeah. 2, Matthew I, 3, 4. I, I've got this one. It's, it's by this. It's on version, the Bible app or whatever, and it's Professor Horner. Um, and it's like day one, you do Matthew 1, Genesis 1, Romans 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, Job 1, Psalms 1, Proverbs 1, Joshua 1, Isaiah 1, and Acts 1. And then you just go chapter by chapter. And so it's chapter 2 of all those books and then chapter 3 of all those books. And so, and so I, I've, I've been doing that. It's been great because today was Matthew 3. And what's Matthew 3? The baptism of Jesus, Right? And then there's um, Isaiah 3, which is where he talks about children shall rule over you, that sort of thing. So it's all very applicable and relevant. Um, but in the baptism of Jesus, um, we celebrate that as a festival in the church because that we see that as, or 
it is seen that that is when Jesus takes, begins to take on our sin to himself. Uh, because what happens right after his baptism? And I mean, after you see the image of the Trinity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what happens after that? The Spirit picks him up and casts him into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days, right, by Satan. So uh, that's when his uh, ministry begins, and uh, he begins to heal and uh, preach and teach and take on the sin of the world upon himself, the sickness and uh, all the ills of mankind, right? He takes on our sin and becomes sin and takes it all the way to the cross. That's great. All right. Um, any other thoughts about that? Comparisons between Christ and, and you? Or anything else you like to draw from that? My last one was Jesus rose and then I will rise also. That's right. Yes. Um, his resurrection is, well, Paul calls him the first fruits of them that sleep. Right? And we as Christians call death sleep. It's actually a beautiful thing to say they fell asleep in Christ. Is, you know? is that when uh, Jesus goes to heal that, that little girl and everyone laughs and she's like, she, she's been dead? And he's like, no, she's just sleeping. It's Jairus' daughter where uh, he, he goes yeah. and, and says, uh, yeah. she's, she's not dead but sleeping. sleeping. Yeah. And he says, uh, kumi, you know, I say to you, little girl, rise, right? And yeah, and she rises up and they're all astonished. Yeah. It's like, well, if you only believe me when I said it in the first place, right? <laughs> um, yeah, she is, she is not dead, but only sleeping. Um, yeah, and we see that too, that we, we fall asleep in Christ because one day we will be woken up on the last day, right? The resurrection of the dead. So yeah, and Jesus is the first fruits of them that sleep because we have the proof of his resurrection, right, in the world in the word, then we say, that's for me, right? Um, that um, we see here from Adam, right? That uh, from uh, Paul, where he says that, um, yeah, um, maybe it's somewhere else, but he says, you know, that, well, no, I think he says it here, right? He says, um, through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men. I, actually, you know what? I'm thinking about chapter 6. We're talking about baptism, right? That um, uh, that we are dead. Yeah. If we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we all shall also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, right? That... As he died, so we die. And in baptism, I mean, it's kind of interesting. We don't have to fear death because we've already died. We're already dead to sin uh, for the sake of Christ, which is why it, for the sons of Solomon, I, when I send out uh, those messages um, to y'all about when we're going to meet, which, by the way, we're meeting Thursday here at church um, at 6 o'clock, uh, you'll see on there it says, Dead men cannot die. I love that. We're already dead. We can't, death is nothing to us anymore, right? 
because Christ lives, right? And, and so do we forever because of him. So that's a great, that's a great comparison. I like that. Uh, all right, well, let's go ahead and move on for the sake of time here. Uh, Jewish views about the origin of evil and free will. Uh, many readers of Romans 5 assume that Paul is affirming a traditional Jewish understanding of the fall of Adam and its consequences for creation, but this is not the case. Jewish people of the first century gave various explanations of how sin came into the world. Some blamed the fallen angels, like in first... Uh, like in First Enoch uh, six through eleven, some blamed Eve. Life of Adam, you see that in the life of Adam and Eve, eighteen verse one, and Sirach twenty five verse twenty four. Some blamed an evil inclination in Adam created by God. Fourth, uh, fourth Ezra three verses twenty through thirty. Oof, that's dangerous. Um, so how might the above views about, about evil affect a person's understanding of salvation? What happens with your understanding of salvation if you take those views? Well, if it's always somebody else's fault... Salvation is only needed for those that are and to be blamed. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Okay, Sean, you're gonna say something? Yeah, I was gonna say it's always it's usually always somebody else's fault. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I, I mean, I think it was Tim Tim Shade today when you say like some blame the fallen angels. The devil made me do it, right? Um, some blamed Eve. I mean, you know who really blamed Eve? Adam. He also blamed God, too, right? It's this woman that you gave me, right? Um, so it's like, I mean, and, and, and um, so it's kind of interesting. Eve blamed the fallen angel. She blamed the serpent, right? Adam blamed Eve and God. Uh, so uh, it, when, you, when you shift the blame, it confuses the doctrine of salvation. Um, because it makes Adam appear like a victim instead of a willing participant in sin. He knew what he was doing, right? Don't think he didn't know. And that was the thing. That was the other thing. I read Genesis 3 today. It was great. <laughs> Genesis 3 today, where you see the fall into sin, and you see that Adam was with his wife. He was with Eve. Which actually, she wasn't named Eve yet. That, that was until after they got kicked out. But um, uh, he was with the woman, right? His wife. And uh, by the way, rain will begin about 822. Um, so <laughs> so uh, you see that it says that um, when Eve saw that it was good for food and that it was, was that desired it, for wisdom. Yeah, and yeah, that's right. That that it was good for making one wise. And I took I took notes today while I was reading that and I put those in like quotation marks. Like it was good, quote unquote, for food and it was good at making one wise, you know? And then it's like and then after she ate, she gave to her husband who was with her. Yeah, he was so with her the whole like, time. Yeah. Good. Um and then I was reading Genesis 3 not too long ago, and yeah. uh, you see Eve kind of tacking on things. That's right. Uh, 
that God really didn't say when she was talking with the serpent. That's right. Who do you think's to blame for that? Yeah. Who do you think's to blame for that? Adam's to blame for that. And some people may say, well, that's not fair. We don't know the full story of what exactly happened, but we can kind of piece things together and say reasonably that, well, was Eve there when God gave that command? Not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? She was not made yet. She was not made from his... She was not made yet. It was only Adam because he placed him in the garden and he told him that he could eat from any tree in the garden except for that one tree. And then while Adam was naming all of the animals, he saw that he had no helper that was fit for him. And so God said, it is not right for man. It is not good for man to be alone. Uh, And so then he caused him to sleep and then he took Eve from his side, right? Um, And... uh, Then when he awoke, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she came from man, which really works out well in our language. It doesn't work out in, and and it works out well in the Hebrew because she will be known as Isha because she came from, uh, she shall be known as Isha because she came from Ish, because Ish means man, Isha means woman. Uh, It doesn't work out well in the Greek. she will be known as Gune because she came from the Anthropos. It doesn't work out so well. Um, you have the Greek Old Testament. That's a, that's a biblical joke. Anyways, um, but you see that he was there. He was tasked with teaching her what was right. And there must have been some miscommunication. But I think it's fair for us to blame Adam because he quite possibly told her don't even go near it. Don't even touch, touch it. it. Yeah. Right? And that's what she reiterated to the serpent. And that's when the serpent was able to weasel in. Right? Um, and so, uh, yeah, Adam's to blame. It's it's his fault. He was there. He clearly, we can clearly uh, reasonably say that, like, because she took a, a bite of the fruit and then she gave it to her husband who was with her, we can reasonably say Adam was waiting to see what would happen. Quite possibly, right? He was waiting to see. It's like, is she really going to die? Oh, oh. And then he's like, oh, no? Okay, great. It's like, I've been wanting to see how this tastes, right? Yeah. And then he has the gall to go and blame her and God. Right? So Adam is the one that is to blame. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he is a willing participant. He's no victim, right? He's got 23 other ribs. <laughs> yeah. 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 He's got 23 other ribs. Yeah. 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 We were talking about that this morning. What would have happened if, 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 uh, something would have happened to her. what would have happened if Adam would have said, no, I'm not going to eat of that. You know, and you shouldn't have eaten it a bit too. Someone said, well, God would have struck, like, struck her dead and just made another one. And I was just like, maybe. I have no idea. We don't know. Right? I mean, it's, it, but it's, it's kind of like my grandma used to tell this joke, and she loved this joke. Uh, you know, you've probably heard it before, but I'll say it. It's, it's, it's pretty funny. Uh, you know, so God puts Adam in the garden, and, and, and he says, I will make you a companion for you. She'll be perfect. She'll she'll cook. She'll clean. She won't complain. She won't nag. She won't she won't do anything but what you want her to do, and, and it'll all just be perfect. And Adam goes, "That sounds really good, but what's it going to cost me?" And God says, "It's going to cost you an arm and a leg." 
And so Adam just thinks about it for a minute. He goes, you got anything for a rib? <laughs> right? Ha, 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 ha. Anyways, sorry, ladies. My grandmother liked that joke. Isn't that funny? Um, <laughs> but the what ifs. The what ifs are great to think about, right? It's all speculation, yeah, but, but it's fun. Yeah. Man, people can, you can really get into a rabbit hole real quick with what if oh, yeah. this and what if that. Well, and sadly, what that, if somebody was able to keep God's law perfectly? And sadly, that's what the rabbinical law, or that's 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 what rabbinical law uh, teaching wound up doing. Getting into all those rabbit holes, you get into the Talmud and things like that, and you get into some bad stuff because they go way too far and asking too many questions and having answers that are definitive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not. It's just. It's just not good. It, it shouldn't be. Well, what if Eve? What if Adam wouldn't have eaten the apple? It's like, well, what if Adam would have taught her properly? That's right. We can what if all day long. And she didn't eat of it. Yeah, right. Luther talks about that too. In fact, Luther's uh, lectures on Genesis are just, it's, it's awesome. It's great reading. Because um, he talks, Luther has some, I like him. He's got some weird ideas sometimes. Uh, because he was saying, you know, well, what would happen? And it's like, he would, he would live and. Luther was like, well, he probably would live for thousands of years. And then when he was just tired of being on earth, he would just go up to be with God. And I was just like, "Mm, okay, well, maybe, I don't know. I mean, it's all speculation. It's fun to think about. Um, But uh, yeah, there's a lot of what ifs. But for our purposes today and understanding uh, sin and the fallen state of humanity, we, 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 we can reasonably say that Adam is to blame. It is his fault. Which is kind of funny because you talk about things like what uh, St. Peter says about Sarah and the obedience of wives to their husbands. And that's controversial, but we can blame Adam all day long and no one's going to get on us for that one, right? Uh, men, men wind up taking a beating for that. But it's like, you know what? We kind of, we kind of need it on some level because we're supposed to have that responsibility, right? We're supposed to have that duty to be good and godly. Yeah. So I have a question. The idea that Eve is also to blame for sin, is that any way part of maybe Eve being a type of Mary, therefore Mary is also part of redeeming? No. Not at all related. No. Well, I mean, what makes you ask that question? popped into my head. Really? Mary is co-redemptress. Maybe she's a type of co-redemptrix. Oh, that's great. <laughs> well, we were talking about types and patterns earlier, so I was like, yeah. well, is this where this came from? You will see, uh, you will see like a, a picture pop up on Facebook or social media sometime where um, someone drew this drawing of like the Virgin Mary and Eve it's like a profile of the two. Do y'all, do y'all, do y'all know what I'm talking about? I don't think I've Keep an eye out for it because it usually pops up sometime around Christmas where uh, you'll someone drew this drawing of Eve on one side and the Virgin Mary on the other side. And the Virgin Mary is pregnant with the Christ and with Jesus. And um, Eve is on the other side in wonder and awe. But under Mary's foot, look very closely, because under her foot is the serpent. And that's a mistranslation in the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate, where it says that uh, she will crush the serpent's head. 
but the real correct translation is that he, that is the seed from the woman, which foreshadows the virgin birth, right? He will crush his head, but the serpent will bruise his heel. I mean, Eve, Eve is a type of the church, I would say. She's a pattern of the church um, because she's the mother of all the living. Christ is the new Adam, and the church is his bride. Therefore, the church can be seen as the new Eve, the mother of all the living. And through the waters of rebirth and holy baptism, children of God are made. Boom. Mic drop. <laughs> I didn't come up with that. I stole it. I mean, but I mean, like, that's, that's theology in a nutshell, though. We, we espouse the things that have been handed down to us, that that there are types and shadows and, and you can see because if 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 um, if Adam is is the old man that still lives within us, the flesh that we still blame for all the bad things we do, right? The the the, the sinful flesh which clings so closely to us, the new man, like we say in the small catechism, that daily through contrition and repentance, the old man should be drowned, and that the new man may come forth and live forever. And the new man is Christ, the new Adam. So it's not a big leap to say that the church, his bride, is the new Eve. Yeah. Okay. Wound it back around from co-redemptrix talk. <laughs> I mean, Mary, Mary is a, Mary's an interesting character, and, and I don't I don't think she deserves any of the of the slander that she sometimes gets from Protestants and trying to be so harsh against Roman Catholicism, you know? The Roman Catholics are certainly wrong in praying to her and and um, saying that she's yeah, where she really shouldn't be. saying that she's co-redeemer with Christ. That's not the case at all. We also should not believe that she was born without sin. That's how Christ was born without sin. That's nonsense. Um, so I mean, but but we should reverence her for we should like give honor to her because she is the mother of God. I mean, she is what the Greeks would say, the God-bearer, the Theotokos, the one. I mean, that was a big issue back in the church history. We can talk about that some other time, how it was controversial to say that she was the mother of God. Um, but she is, right? She is. Yeah. Jesus is God. She gave birth to God. <laughs> it's kind of a weird thing to think about, but it's true. It's true. Um, which is kind of funny because I think I've made this joke before. I would love it if I could plant a church somewhere. I don't know if anybody would go for it, but I would love to plant a church called St. Mary Lutheran Church. That'd be awesome. St. Mary Lutheran Catholic Church. Yeah. I'd say St. Mary Augsburg Catholic Church or whatever, you know, something like that. Um, evangelical Catholic Church. We'll say that. Yeah. Right? Um, that's what we used to be known as, the Evangelical Catholics. So, um, anyways. All right, so let's move on here. Um, so, uh, also in contrast to Paul, many first century Jews affirmed that humans living after the sin of Adam continue to have a free will to choose between good and evil. For example, the late first century Jewish document Second Baruch, Philo, writing about 40 A.D. Uh, and uh, in Quod Deus Sit Immutabilis, uh, 10, verse 47, and Josephus in Jewish Wars 2, uh, verse 
I think paragraph 165. So how might some, how might the above views about the power of the human will affect a person's understanding of salvation and sanctification about free will? I don't need Christ. Yeah. Yeah. It's up to me. Yeah. I, yeah. I get to make the decision. Yeah. I don't need Christ. Yeah, um, people people think, some people might think that if you tell people the gospel, it's like, Jesus died for your sins. Some people might think that's very insulting. So like, what sins? What are you talking about? You know? I don't need to be forgiven for anything. I didn't do anything wrong. You know? Um, anything else? Here's what I put for that. Yeah. I said, uh, by his being the person choosing... He can make him or himself righteous, right? Yeah. Um, and then I was thinking about baptism. I was like that that theology of people choosing their bap when they're baptized, mm-hmm. um, and God not choosing, doing the choosing. And I just went through the book of Judges, mm-hmm. um, and. God is appointing people before they're even born, right? Yeah. And choosing them, like Samson yeah. was before That's he right. was born, was chosen to be a Nazarite. A Nazarite. A Nazarite, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, he did it with John the Baptist. He did it with Jesus. That's he right. does it all over. Mm-hmm. And so, if you think you have a choosing, you're not getting it. You don't understand. Yeah, you're not understanding it. They don't understand it. Yeah, yeah. It's like you're trying to elevate yourself to the position of being equal with God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The decision theology. Mm-hmm. You know, I I see that. Yes. When I go with my daughter. Mm-hmm. I see that made a decision. It makes sense on some level, right? Yeah. And that's that's the tricky part. It makes sense. Right on some level, um, um, the devil, devil way to see that. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we Lutherans are weird, uh, and by that I mean that we don't fit in any other category except for our own category and things. Um, what I mean by that is that when someone says, you know, Lutherans are Protestants, I, I kind of cringe at that a little bit because we're not really Protestants in the in what some people might think. Because uh, on one hand, let's just say over here you have you know the Roman, Roman Catholics, right? And I always put Roman there because they're the Roman Catholics, yes. um, which is kind of funny. Uh, they, they're on one side. You have the Protestants on the other side, right? Uh, you have the Protestants on the other side, and usually within the Protestant camps, you'll have like the Calvinists or the Reformed. You know, so I'll just put, like, the Reformed. And then under them, you also have the Arminians. Not the Armenians, but the Arminians. Uh, And they're two different camps. Uh, Calvinists, on one hand, they would agree with us. Lutherans, we're our own thing, really. I mean... I have a question about Arminian. All right. Well, yeah. So, so on on one thing with the Calvinists, 
they would agree that salvation is completely in God's realm, but they are hyper-logical, and they will say, well, God chooses who will be saved. And we say, yeah, of course he does. And they'll say, but logically, it is, it is um, reasonable to assume that if he chooses whom he will save, he also chooses whom he will condemn. Right? So you can basically live your entire life saying that you're a Christian, believing you're a Christian, and then at the end of your life, when you die, God's going to say, but you really weren't, because I didn't choose you to be saved, I chose you to be condemned. Right? That's where you get the saying, damned if you do and damned if you don't, to be honest with you. That's where, that's where it really comes from. It was a criticism against Calvinism. The Arminians, on the other hand, didn't like that, and they said, no, 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 that's too harsh. So they, said, they started saying things that, um, that it, it kind of fell into the Pelagius camp. They said, no, you have the ability to uh, choose or reject, right? You have the ability to choose Christ as your Savior or, or reject him, one or the other. It's free will, right? Um, Lutherans, if you talk to a Calvinist and you say, yeah, that's right. Jesus does all the saving. God does all the saving. And then you say, but you have the ability to fall away. You have the, the ability to reject. I mean, look at Saul, right? Look at David. Look at Peter, right? Uh, Judas, right? Um, whether or not they, you know, repent or not, that's a, that's a different issue. But it's like, you can't fall away. So Calvinists will say, so you're basically an Arminian. And the Arminians, when we say, no, you can't choose to be saved, they'll say, well, you're basically a Calvinist. We go, no, we're not either. We're kind of in the middle sort of thing. Yeah. You have a question about... Oh, you answered it for me. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> but it's also interesting because the Calvinists and the Arminians, they are sacramentarians, which means that baptism and Holy Communion are symbols. They don't actually do anything, right? Um, that where... baptism and communion are symbols? Yes, and... Given certain distinctions, that can mean different things. Uh, because uh, with the Calvinists, some stripes will say, "Well, something happens, but it's all spiritual, and it's a, and it's like you you spiritually ascend into the heavenly realm and feast on the body and blood of Christ there spiritually." And we're just like, "What? Where does it say that in the Bible? You know, Jesus simply says, it is my body, it is my blood. So in that sense, we would be more in line with the Roman Catholics in our understanding of Holy Communion. We just disagree on how it becomes the body and blood of Christ. They say that there's actual substantive, substantial change, right? transubstantiation, that it no longer is... is uh, bread and wine, but it is actual body and blood. And we say, you know, the elements are still there. It is still bread and wine, but in the, and this is how we use, it's a mystery, but we use these words like in with and under the bread and the wine is the body and blood of Christ, right? I don't know how, we're not going to answer that. Because like through talk the about word that. and the water, that's how we, the, the Holy Spirit is delivered. Through the water and the and word. And the word spoken together. Yes, in holy baptism, yeah. 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 Well, yeah, like... It's not a representation of that happening. Right, yeah. Well, they would say that that it's 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 an outward expression of the inward change in faith and things like that, you know. 
They'll say my baptism. I've heard that very recently. That's right. Yeah, my baptism is is simply my outward expression of what God has already done in my heart, as opposed to God actually doing something in the water and the Word. Right. So it's kind of interesting being a Lutheran. We're a little weird, <laughs> but I like it that way. I like being. Lutheran. It's, it's not weird. They, I've always hear, uh, heard Lutheran pastors say we keep everything in attention. Yes, we do. Well, we keep it in tension. You know why? Because God word, God's word keeps it in tension. You know, we never speak. We do our best not to speak where Scripture is silent, right? Where Scripture speaks, we speak. Where it is silent, we stay silent. We say, how is it that bread and wine can be the body and blood of Christ? We go, I don't know. Go talk to Jesus. <laughs> Ask him how it is and see what he'll tell you. And he'll probably just say, because I said so. I mean, I am God, you know. <laughs> it's like, can I be wrong? Will I lie to you? No. Jesus won't lie to you. If he says it is, it is. Let's not worry about how and all this other stuff. Let's worry about the why, right? Why is it that he gives us his body and blood to drink for our salvation, right? For the strengthening of our faith. So anyways, being a Lutheran means that we are a little bit weird, um, but we keep things in tension. I like that, actually. I like that a lot. Um, no, we're, we're special. You're very special. I think so. That's what I keep telling myself. All right. Uh, so anyways. So yeah, um, these understanding of free will. Um, yeah, you can either, if you can choose good and choose evil, then how can you can't keep the entirety of the law? Right? I mean... And then what's the point of Jesus if you can do that? That's exactly right. And it's very interesting also, there's another denomination, the Wesleyans. Have you all heard of the Wesleyans? The Wesleyans, they're like a stripe of Methodism. Right, um, and uh, well, I mean, they're they're their own thing, but uh, they believe that you can achieve perfect sanctification, like you can become perfectly holy in this life, and we'll talk about that. Um, but it's like, so when you understand uh, salvation, that is justification and sanctification. Um, y'all, y'all know what those t- two two words mean, roughly? Justification. What does justification mean? I know I'm quizzing you, but made y'all can right. Yeah. So being made uh, just, right, or righteous, right? So being made just justified or righteous so then what is sanctification to make holy yeah being made holy. that's right being made holy hopefully you can read this <laughs> writing really fast being made holy because you hear sanctification sanctuary you know it's a holy place um it's or holy or um Close, set apart, set apart for God's special purpose, right? Um, So being made holy or set apart. So everything in the tabernacle and the sanctuary was made holy for worship, right? That's why whenever we have anything in the sanctuary, we should do our best not to profane the space, right? God is doing something great there, and we do our best not to violate the the sanctuary in that way, right? I had a thought. 
yeah. popped in there. Yeah. So did Jesus sanctify baptism? Like what John was doing was baptizing people? Yeah, John said, uh, I baptize with a baptism of repentance, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Um, um, and then you have later on in Acts that there are disciples of John who come and uh, they receive the baptism from John, or of John, they say, and yet they don't have the Holy Spirit, and so the apostles lay hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. So in that sense, Jesus brings a different kind of baptism. It is for repentance, but it is for salvation. Um, I need to look, look at that again. I don't, they're not, they both serve similar ends, but they're not exactly the same thing. Um, because if, if they were, then why did the uh, disciples of John come to the apostles and say, we have been baptized with John's baptism, but we have not received the Holy Spirit yet, right? It's just, it's just a little bit different. That's, and that's why they had to lay hands on them and confer the Holy Spirit to them okay. in that sense. So in that sense, he, prob he, he made holy baptism what it was meant to be. Okay. I guess you could say. Okay. So in that sense, yeah, it was sanctified by Christ and by, by what he did in his death and resurrection, for sure. So did John's baptisms after Christ's baptism have the Holy Spirit filled You know, I don't know. Um, that's a good question, because also the, the disciples were baptizing, too. Right. Jesus never baptized anybody. His disciples baptized people. So what kind of baptism were they engaging in and, and all that sort of thing? Well, like, say, how could Jesus make baptism holy when it was holy to begin with? Well, I mean, I yeah, mean, that gets into... if it's not holy? What did John's baptism do? Um, Fulfilled the requirements. Yeah, so um, when you see that... John's baptism to other people, though. When he says that... Um, Matthew 3, in, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Uh, and he says, um, And were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, he said, Brood of vipers, you know. Um, and then he says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Right? Um, I would. I, I, I don't think that means that the Holy Spirit wasn't present before that was happening. I mean, then what do you do with the disciples of John when they come to the apostles in Acts and they say, we have been baptized with John's baptism, but we don't know your baptism. And they don't re-baptize them. They simply lay hands on them and confer the Holy Spirit to them. Because they haven't received saying, the Holy Spirit. They've already been baptized. It's already... Yeah. It's like saying I'll look into it baptized more. before that, it wasn't any good. No, it's not that it's not any good. Because they are coming and confessing their sins. They are, they are um, being washed clean in that mm -hmm. sense. But it's not necessarily the same... It's not necessarily exactly the same baptism that Christ was baptized or that Christ instituted later on, because later on in Matthew 28, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all 
nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That wasn't a thing until he gave them that command mm -hmm. to fulfill. I mean... So their baptism wasn't the same as... But that doesn't mean that it wasn't... Uh, that it... That it that it wasn't blessed in some way, though. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that it was meaningless or worthless. I mean, we shouldn't Bro, think in Jesus those Jesus wouldn't have been baptized by John. That's right. If it was worthless, Jesus wouldn't have been baptized by John. That's what I'm saying. So it was still holy. He didn't... It was set apart. Let's just... Yeah, it was holy in that sense. It was set apart. But in the sense of actually being baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ, it wasn't quite that. You see what I'm saying by that? No, we can cover that sometime. We can talk about it later. That's fine. Um, all I wanted to do with pointing out this is that when it comes to sanctification and justification, we have to make the proper distinction between the two, um, and uh, they both go together. They can't. They shouldn't be separated, because if you've been justified for the sake of Christ, then you should live a holy life, right? Not out of compulsion and guilt, but out of joy that you have been set free from your sin. And it's like basically saying... you say, get to live a sanctified life. Yeah, you get to live that life because you have been given actual life. You yeah. see it like that. So it's like if you are... If you're a chronic liar, right? Or you have certain sins that are pet sins, you know, I mean... Lying, gossiping, I mean, one of the more uh, insidious ones these days is like pornography or something like that, right? You know, it's like if you're justified before, before God, you would desire to end that. You would desire to fight your flesh and the sinful desires that you have and uh, see the struggle for what it is in living a life set apart for God, because we are temples of the Holy Spirit now, right? And so in that sense, though, we should understand that just because sanctification is hard, it's a lifelong process, we will never be fully sanctified 100% in this life, unless Christ comes back, right? Don't think that that brings into question your justification, right? Just because sanctification is hard, because you will fall, you will sin, you will fall short. Not as an excuse to just say, well, I'm going to watch porn anyways, might as well just go do it. Right? That's not where, I'm just going to lie anyways, might as well just go lie. You know, that's not, that's not an excuse for sin. But it is that if you fall into it because your sinful flesh, because it happens, I don't know how else to put it, then you are, by the power of the Holy Spirit, pointed back to justification, pointed back to what Christ has done for you, so that you can repent, believe in the promises of God, and then continue to go through that cycle, you know? Tension. That tension, that's right. Be the church, the Israel, right? The ones who are given God's grace and then squander it, and then God rebukes you, calls you to um, repent, and then in faith, you trust his promises of salvation again, and all kind of goes around and around and around. It's the process we go through. And if it wasn't a process, we wouldn't need confession and absolution every Sunday. Or even more than that, you know, um, private confession and absolution. Uh, but justification always leads to sanctification. Sanctification does not lead to justification. 
See what I'm saying with that? Um, don't put the cart before the horse. We're coming to Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin? <laughs> so that grace may abound. By no means. <laughs> That's right. So, Meganoito is the... We this and set, set here next chapter. <laughs> that's right. So yeah, and so that's the struggle. And then we see in Romans 7, of oh, the good that I want to do, I do not do, and the, the evil that I don't want to do, I just keep on doing. Who will deliver me from this body of death, right? So on that next page, let's, let's go ahead and finish this out today. We're going a long, sorry. Um, revisit Romans 3, 10 through 18. That's where he cites all those Passages from, you know, the Psalms and, and where he's saying, you know, none is righteous, no, not one, no one does good, right? Um, and with that, what picture of the human will has Paul compiled here from the Psalms? Because if you have people who say you have free will to decide good or evil, some people, I don't, I don't hear it as often anymore, but then again, I don't get out that much. Uh, you'll hear people, it's like, you know, you have these two dogs inside of you one's evil and one's good and whichever one you feed is the one that is dominant and it's just like that's like yin yang type stuff you know it's that's that's kind of eastern thought or it's not correct thinking so if someone says that to you or says you know you have a good side and a bad side whichever one you choose yeah we all have the light and the darkness inside of us stuff like that so what would you tell them what what picture of the human will is Paul compiled there in Romans 3, 10 through 18 from the Psalms? I put, you have only the will to resist. Yeah, um, yeah, okay. Anybody else have anything else before I get off on that one? No one can do all good. I mean, people can do good, but not all. Yeah, no one is perfect, right? Um, yeah, it's out there. It's, yeah. I should have I should have ended class earlier. You mentioned um, two dogs. That analogy. I always think the Looney Tunes where you got the devil on one shoulder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. angel on the other the shoulder. Angel on the other. Talking to each other. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I mean that's probably a little more accurate on some level because those are outside of themselves. You know the the spiritual influences, but yeah. Um, what did you say again, Sean? You said, um, uh, it, it mentions, uh, what picture of the human, the human will. Right. Oh, you only have the ability to resist or reject. Yeah. yeah and that's like what. Like a free will sense, like the only thing that has free will is God. Right. In the sense that, so, so, uh, I'll try and keep this as simple as I can. Uh, because Luther went into it a lot in the bondage of the will, where he was debating with uh, Erasmus, who was an academic, a contemporary of his. Erasmus basically said that you have the free will to do good or to do bad, and Luther said, no, you don't. Your will is bound by itself to sin. That's why it's called the bondage of the will. It is bound to sin apart from Christ. Therefore, if it can only sin, that's all it seeks out to do. And therefore, if that's all it can do, you need God to free your will truly from sin so that you can actually be free. Right? 
and God must do it because you can't, because you're bound. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, right? So you only have the ability in and of yourself to reject. You do not have the ability within yourself, by yourself, to believe or to choose Christ, right? Um, it's hard for a lot of people to swallow. It takes away your autonomy, right? It takes away... It shatters the illusion of yourself that you think that you have total control. You don't. So it sounds like you're inherently bad. You are. You are. Yeah. I, mean, I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Sense, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Inherently, yeah. you... But it just sounds yeah. like we're just bad. But it makes it... Yeah, some people might think, like, that means you're inherently yeah. mean yeah. and yeah. cruel right. and those things. Right. And we've talked before about civil righteousness and uh, what is it? Um, civil righteousness and, and um, divine righteousness, right? Where someone can be a non-believer but civilly righteous. They can follow all the, the laws. They don't speed. They don't, they don't drink. They don't steal. They don't do this, that, or the other. But that's not what makes you righteous in God's eyes, right? So, yeah. But they're still sinners and... That's what makes it hard for someone to believe. So, yeah. Any other thoughts on that? I right. think that's why a lot of people, though, I, I, I think a lot of people, and I hear a lot of people, they don't want to go to church because they don't want to be told constantly over and over that they're bad. Yeah. And that what they're doing is wrong. Well, but now, don't you know? Or that they're surrounded by hypocrites in yeah. church. Like, they're not one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, well, don't you know there are churches out there that aren't really concerned about that anymore? You know, so they won't, they won't, they won't tell you you're a bad person anymore. A lot and of I say the reason I go to church is because I'm a bad person. I need to be forgiven of my sins. Keep doing it. You keep, know? keep, keep saying it. Maybe it'll. We're a whole church full of sinners. That's why we're here. Well, hope, hopefully, the Lord would do His work through those words that you tell them for sure. All right, and. Just keep on going until the rain stops. I'm just kidding. Um, Hugo Odeberg, in his valuable book, Pharisaism and Christianity, describes this denial of uh, this denial of original sin within first century Judaism. Inasmuch as this soul is indestructible, Pharisaic Judaism is unable to comprehend the fall of man and even less the idea um, and and even less the idea um, of original sin. Excuse me. The story of the fall in Genesis is therefore regarded by the Pharisaic teachers merely as a typical example of the disobedience against God of which man under certain circumstances, is guilty. They speak of, of evil impulses in man, which oppose the good impulse during his during his his earthly sojourn. These evil impulses, however, are only able for a time to obscure the purity of the soul, the divine spark in man, but they can never extinguish it. 
Um, so how was the fall of Adam certainly not typical of our daily sins? What was different? I said the fall of Adam impacted even the plants and the animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Impacted everything forever. And all creation. Well, not forever, right? Well, as long as we're here on earth. That's right. As long as Christ has not come back yet. Yeah. I mean, um, but we see... My sins that I commit don't affect... Hmm? (laughs) (laughs) They may, they will. Like if somebody, like you're saying pornography, if somebody's looking at pornography, it's not going to affect him or her. It's affecting me. That's what I'm saying. No, but it does, though. His sin affected everybody. Okay, so here, I'll see. Yeah, that's what you're trying to say. Yeah, I got you. So, yes, no, you're right. On some level. Yeah, but they're yours, but they do affect others in a certain way that you may not think of. But they still are within a certain realm, whereas Adam affected the entire world, all of creation, right? Um, And so according to St. Paul, Adam's fall infected and condemned us all. And that's the big difference. That that, That shouldn't diminish our sin. In fact, that should actually magnify it because what are we doing if not just heaping more and more and more on top of it, right? Uh, we are all contributors of the problem um, for which we should repent, right? And trust in Christ and have him work through us. So, uh, any other thoughts on that? Nope? Okay. Romans 5 demonstrates the universal nature of God's grace and justification, especially 5 verse 18. Therefore, just as through the one trespass condemnation came to all men, so also through the one righteous act declared righteous life came to all men. The resulting life of the one who is righteous by faith, which is the emphasis of this chapter, is made clear in chapter 5 verse 21. With the result that just as sin reigned unto death, so also grace reigns through righteousness, i.e., Grace that gives a righteous status reigns unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Words to remember. But the gift uh, is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Romans 5.15 So to prepare for next time, uh, dead to sin and alive to God, read Romans 6, verses 1 through 23. Go through uh, the pages there. I think it's pages 41 through, really, 43. Um, And fill those out. Come ready to discuss, and and we'll see you all next Wednesday. Uh, Maybe... Well, maybe it'll be raining still. I don't know. We'll see. By God's grace, it might. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, the rainbow says that won't happen. Not all day. Well, even then, it wasn't just the rain. It was the water that came from the deep, too. That's right. Yeah. Top and bottom. All right. With that, how about let's go ahead and close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.